Hello and welcome to episode 86 of Command Space. My name is Mike Hurley and this Command Space is on the glorious 5x5 network. Today I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Mr. John Syracuse. Hi John. Hi Mike. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, I thought I'd been on here before. It's hard to keep track. It was in March of 2013. So long ago. A very, very long time ago. I, I've by accident recently been been booking people on about a year from the previous time that I had them on. It, it just keeps happening. Which is maybe it may, I'll call that good planning, but it's complete accident. So how are you? Thank you for being here. I'm doing just fine. So I have a. a a specific thing that I want to talk to you about today, really, which is about being a geek and what it means to be a geek and what that means to you. And this was prompted by an article that you wrote um, on the newly revived, or revived since we last spoke, I think, hypercritical.co, which is your, would you call it a blog? Yeah, I, I go back and forth. I don't like calling it a blog. It's just a website where I write things, but it is kind of a blog. I don't know. I, I, I think a blog's more, as more of a diary where you're, every day you write something about what happened, and that is definitely not what I do. Does anybody do that anymore? Really? Yeah, I think so. People have personal blogs. Like, this is, you know, here's my work site, but here's my personal blog. And on your personal blog, you write, uh, I saw a good movie this weekend. Let me tell you about it. You know what I mean? But this is kind of just a place where if you have some sort of inspiration, you will write a piece. Yeah, I for a long time I didn't have any place that was like my website. I used to send people to Ars Technica or the, or the page on Ars Technica that listed my articles, or I'd send them to. I used to have like a staff blog at Ars Technica, but there was never any place like where, where's your stuff? Where's just you? And so that's what this website is. And it doesn't mean that it gets updated any more frequently than those other things would have. But at least now I have a place to direct people. It's only mine. The only thing there is me. And I guess for a while when you were recording. The show hypercritical five by five. I guess that was where you put those things. Yeah, that was. Uh, it wasn't only me; it was Dan as well. But that was, uh, you know, it was, I could call that my podcast. But I didn't have any place to write about my podcast except on other people's websites. So it's nice. I just feel good knowing my site is out there. That I have a site. I have a domain that I finally found for it. I got a name for it. And now, whenever I have anything to write, I know exactly where I can put it. So this piece that you wrote in January, the road to geekdom. Um, which talks about we, we're, we're going to dive into a little bit more, but sort of the, the the top line summary of the piece is you're talking about being a geek, what it means to be a geek to you, and and the things that you're geeky about. Where did the idea for this piece come from? If you can remember, was there a specific thing that made you want to write it, or is it just something that have been you've been mulling around for a while? I've got this. I've got a text file somewhere in my Dropbox called like ideas or something, and I. Whenever I have an idea for something I might want to write, I throw in a line or two in there, or sometimes like a little one paragraph outline. Or, and I think this one was maybe like one or two words worth of stuff. And I don't know how long it th things sit in that idea file for a long time. Sometimes they never make it to to be written about. It. Sometimes they go from the idea file in the morning to being written about at night. But this one had been in there for a while, and I think it was kind of the culmination of a whole bunch of things. Uh, there was a bunch of flare-ups on the web back towards the end of Hypercritical about the fake geek girls and uh, girls in gaming culture. Uh, and we, I did a Hypercritical episode on that topic. And at that point, it felt like a long time in coming. I was like, a, this this had been sort of milling around on the web, and I finally got a chance to talk about it. But it didn't go away, and then there were newer things like uh, the feminist frequency thing with uh, Anita Sarkeesian. I get her last name wrong all the time causing some more flare-ups about that and it's just it seems like an ongoing issue it's not like a web controversy that comes and goes it just it just keeps humming along in the background and uh, i always wanted to talk about it even when i didn't feel like i had anything particularly interesting to say so i, I had a line item for this topic and i don't remember what it, what made me decide today's the day i'm going to write something on that topic but i thought i had a an angle on it that i hadn't read elsewhere or that I hadn't seen a lot of from other people in Twitter or whatever so I thought it was worth writing about so let's talk about what it means to be a geek how do you define a geek I, I mostly define it as someone who is really enthusiastic about something and that enthusiasm causes them to learn a lot about it uh, 
and that's distinct from like nerd and dork in other words. Uh, and I think geek is probably the most general and the most benign because there aren't really negative connotations. The only negative connotations you can say is that someone who is, you're too enthusiastic about this topic. It's embarrassing how enthusiastic you are about whatever it is. And that could be seen as a negative, but I think that's silly. And the other one is that, uh, you're so enthusiastic that you spend all your time participating in or learning about this thing to the exclusion of other activities. And that's not a healthy life balance. And maybe there's a little bit more, uh, merit to that view but in most cases i don't think that's true and so that's my definition of geek and you can put anything you want before geek you could be a car geek a a horse geek a sports geek a baseball geek uh, a sewing geek whatever you want and any word can go before that to you is there any difference between being a geek and a nerd Do, do you I know that there are people that try to balance these two things as two separate things, but like nerd, dork, any of that, are they all the same? Or do no, you think there's a difference? Nerd is definitely a different thing. A nerd is someone who's interested in a topic of a specific type. I know lots of people say, oh, like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sports nerd or whatever. But that, I don't, th- my distinction is that a nerd has to be someone who is not just interested in a topic and enthusiastic about it, but has particular aptitude in it like it's not enough to just learn about the topic and know about sort of ancillary trivia and uh, you know knowledge of the of the broad subject you have to actually be good at it so if you're a math nerd you just don't know a lot about math and have studied the history of math and read blogs about math you have to actually be good at math and you know same type of thing for any other type of nerd i i tend to i think nerds use more academic and it's there's a requirement for actual skill whereas you don't need any particular aptitude to be geek about anything it's not it's not a skill game it's not like i'm a better firefly geek than you are because i i'm a bigger fan of them and i know more about them like it's not a contest in terms of who knows the most trivia but if you are a math nerd you better know math and you can be a you can be out nerded by someone who is knows more math and is better at math because it's a thing you can know right or right. you know i guess it's a little bit of crossover things like history like if you're a history geek and you know a lot about history you're also probably a history nerd because knowing history is basically what there is to history and understanding history whereas other things that you could be nerdy about there are actual skills involved you may know all the rules of math and have uh, knowledge of the history of math, but you may not have a great ma- mind for mathematics. What do you consider yourself to be a geek in? What what pursuits? It was easier to be a geek when I was younger because it seemed like my brain could fit more things in at the same time where I could be... Firstly, I had more free time. I wrote about in the article some of the things that I used to be a geek about that I'm not anymore. Uh, I used to be a, a geek about U2, which was the first band I really got into, because I had a lot of free time, and I would just learn about them and li- listen to their music and find obscure music of theirs, and I had a website about them. And uh, the time to do all that stuff has, for any band, let alone you two, has more or less disappeared. Same thing with the remote control cars. When I was a kid, I, w- I wanted to be into them, and I learned a lot about them and got a bunch of remote control cars and played with them. And I was an RC car geek for a while there, but I, that hobby has been totally cut out of my life. I haven't had time to touch one of those things for ages. If I was a man of leisure, I would probably be a geek about more things. But at this point, I'm a geek about things that are tangentially related to my livelihood. So it's, you know, computers, programming, tech news and stuff like that. Things that I would podcast about, write about, or do in my job, my day job, which is programming. What pursuit for you, what is the thing that you are most geeky about these days? Is it? Do you first and foremost consider yourself a computer geek? Yeah, I think that's got to be the winner. Like, that's a broad term. Like, what the hell is a computer geek? But it has to be, it has to be like Mac and programming stuff. Because I do the programming stuff every day. And anything you do every day, you will, you, it, it keeps you current in your knowledge of and you become better at it. So you become both a nerd at it and a geek. And yeah, the, the Apple tech world, I'm, I've been keeping up with since I was a kid. I still keep up with it. That's got to be my biggest area of geekdom, probably. I think maybe coming from the outside and and looking at the the types of things that you do and and the passion that you show for certain subjects, like you have computers and sci-fi and fantasy, video games, cars, right? And for each of these things, you have something that you contribute creatively to. So you have the OS X reviews, you have the incomparable, um, things like Hypercritical, where you would talk about video games at length, in some episodes 
some of the best episodes in my opinion. And you have neutral for cars and stuff, you know, or you had neutral for when you know for your to show your love of cars. How important is it for you personally to create something that plays to your interests? I think that's what geeks do. They want to, you know, they call it geeking out about something. Like they, you want to talk to other people who are also into the same topic. So you go to conventions, you find people on the internet and, and areas of the internet that are also talking about the same things you're talking about. Uh, you want to share these things. Now, I, I happen to be in a, a uh, uncommon position in many of these topics in that I get a chance to geek out about them sort of in public. So whereas other people might just talk to their friends about video games, I get the opportunity to talk about video games with friends and then we record it and release it as a podcast. And with, you know, with neutral, same thing with cars. I've been talking with my friends about cars for years, but we did a podcast, three of us together, and just talked about cars and send it out to the public. Uh, so it's important for me, like it is for anyone else, to talk to other people about the topics that interest me because, you know, you don't want to just be like, sitting in your basement by yourself doing whatever your pursuit is is kind of lonely uh i think it's also it also makes it more fun to be able to talk about it in a forum that's public because then you get more feedback from people who weren't technically part of the conversation and you're kind of creating something that's out there for other people to enjoy on a sustained basis or whatever so uh i think the most important thing is to share your enthusiasm for a topic with other people and i think having the opportunity to do so in public and get that feedback from a wider audience is just icing. Do you think that you would create things like podcasts if your audience was 50 people? Does it make a difference to you that that you know that you're one of the lucky few that have an audience? I, it does make a difference to me in that I want to have the biggest audience possible. I think uh I, I think that when there are people out there who I think would be interested in what I have to say who aren't hearing it, I feel like, well, you should listen to my podcast you, <laughs> because you'd be really into it. Not so much that I would say that uh, like everyone should listen to it because I'm well aware that these topics are, are narrow enough that you're limiting your audience to some tiny fraction of percentage of the world. But of that tiny fraction of percentage of the world, I want all of them to hear it. So I, I do have that drive sort of to get my message out to the most people possible. But on the other hand, like, I don't, how many people listen to neutral? Probably not a lot. Uh, I'm perfectly content to just talk about it and record it and release it. And even if, even if only a couple of people download, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, everything I do is only experienced by a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the, the, the people in the world, even just within the tech world. Like, yeah. almost, you know, almost no one, basically to a first approximation, no one in the tech world even knows who I am. And that's because the tech world is so big, right? And the audience for people who might want to read back computers is so big. I know I am narrow casting it at a tiny little audience, but the people who do like what I do, I kind of have that same feeling. I think that I didn't know anyone else was really into this topic. I'm into it, and this person is into it, and they're excited to find someone else who wants to talk about, you know, file systems or the TiVo user interface or whatever it may be that is super important to us, but like almost no one else in the world cares about. So I, it, even though the audience is small, both in absolute terms and certainly in relative terms, uh, I think they're very enthusiastic because the smaller the audience, the more lucky the two sides feel to have found each other. You've mentioned um, in a few places in the past that your RSI, um, it is RSI that you, you suffer with, right? That that prevents you from playing as many video games as you'd love, and you are a self-professed video game geek. How does it feel to have something fight against an impulse like this? Like you want to play games, but you can't. How does that feel? It's kind of a bummer, but I mean, it, it forces you to branch out. Like podcasting is the perfect opportunity for that because hey, I don't have to type; I can just talk, and it doesn't involve my wrists, and that's good. Uh, it makes me choose what I do with my time, with my hands better, I guess. Like I, I, I pick and choose my games that I play very carefully because I know I only have a certain number of hours that I can play these games, right? It's kind of a shame that my livelihood depends so much on typing because that burns up a lot of my potential you know, keystrokes per day just doing that. Uh, and it means that I have to do a lot of my writing with speech recognition, which is not so bad, but... Yeah, it would be nicer if I didn't have to do these things. But it also lets you to say, it lets me, <laughs> the strange side effect is it lets me feel better, for example, about watching a TV show or watching mm -hmm. a movie 
because that's like you're doing something healthy and good by by varying <laughs> your activity. Now you're not typing; you're sitting on the couch, and that's good for you health wise in terms of letting your wrist rest. And that is true, but it's like most people don't get that. I'm doing something good for myself by watching House of Cards three episodes in a row, kind of perk, and I do. Uh, but in general, it's mostly a bummer. I would pr- I would prefer to be typing more than I do. I would prefer to be playing more video games than I do, uh, and, which is exactly what I did, which got me into the situation I'm in now. Uh, but in the grand scheme of things, it's probably for the best. I guess the, the, you could look sometimes at it being, an, there, there can be a net positive in the idea that you're not playing bad games, most likely, because you're, you're being very picky about the games that you do play. So maybe you tend to just get the best, which I guess is probably what, we all would love to have just to play the best games. Yeah, I have to wait though because I have to wait till everyone else plays them and tells me whether they're any good or not and I have to be careful to avoid spoilers and even then, like even amongst these games that I consider like, you know, worthy of my my efforts, I just have this gigantic backlog of games that I know are good, that I know I'll enjoy. And it's both the, the time with my wrists and also just the time period, you know, like this I have so much less free time and I have to you know, to spend it wisely, and video games get end up getting pushed down because obviously work comes first. You know, and then you got your family time, and then all the things that don't involve your wrists, like maybe I'm going to watch one TV show and go to bed, and that's it for that day, right? So when are you going to play uh, any video games? In recent history, um, maybe in the last few years, as things like smartphones and tablets have become more prevalent, there are definitely more. There's definitely been a change in the way that computer geeks are perceived in popular culture. Right? It's a lot more acceptable to know and enjoy computers and computing devices. How does that feel for somebody who's gone through the whole, you know, when basically when computers and being a computer geek was a strange thing to now where it's kind of becoming a little bit more mainstream? How does it feel to have gone through and to take a look at that sort of process? I'm I'm not entirely sure that it's as different as it sometimes appears to be to us from this perspective. Uh, computers are definitely more commonplace, but if I think about the the reasons that you would be smeared with a computer geek label and it would be you know a put down, pretty much all those reasons still exist. I think. I mean, I guess I'll find out when my kids become teenagers or whatever. But I'm not sure it's as different as we think it is. And I'm not sure being a whatever geek, no matter what you put in front of the word geek, is as socially acceptable as we think it is. Uh, I know in the pop culture, it seems like it is more accepted. But in my experience, the the, enth- the sort of unbridled enthusiasm for a particular topic, no matter what it may be, is, is still basically uncool. Whether it's theater, band, uh, skateboarding, computers... You know, it doesn't matter. Even even sports, you, you you end up being driven away from the general group and into sort of like these smaller groups of like the people who are really into swimming. No, no, I mean really into swimming. I mean wake up at four thirty a.m. every day and go swimming. You end up hanging out with the swimming geeks, and you you form off into this little group, and this little group is separate from everybody else, and it's not going to be, you know, as accepted as if you were just kind of like jack of all trades not hyper into anything because being really really into anything is really not that cool i guess it being inherently overly interested in something will gravitate you towards smaller groups right and pull and pull you away from the other people like the whole thing about being cool is you're not supposed to care too much about anything because you're cool man you know but like it's if you really, really care about something, you will start doing it to the exclusion of other things. And those other things are going to be the, the social activities that, you know, that, that would give you higher status among your peers who aren't super into swimming or whatever it may be. So that's why that's why you end up with clicks and everything in school. And uh, for in particular, for things like computers, the people who tend to be drawn to computers, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but like I, I think those the attraction of being able to manipulate this virtual world is particularly great to people who have a more difficult time with the actual world, more difficult time with people, more difficult time with social situations, because the world of the computer is a controllable area outside of that, that where they can demonstrate mastery and it behaves very differently and it appeals to their analog. The whole sort of, you know, on the sort of Asperger's syndrome spectrum or whatever it is of 
you know, from not dealing well with people. I think there's a connection in particular between computer uh, geekery and that type of thing. So although computers may be more accepted, all those traits that make you super into computers when you're young are not really socially accepted. They want you to be, you know, cool and friendly and engage with people better and be well-adjusted and all those things that computer geeks tend not to be. And it's not because they're into computers. They're into computers because of those things. And again, that's a generalization. It's not you know, strictly true. But in my experience, that was the case when I was a kid. And I think it's probably still the case now to some degree. Your computer geekdom um, started in 1984, right? With the Mac, with the first Mac, with the Macintosh. Well, I had a VIC-20 and uh, what did I have before that? Not just, yeah, the rented VIC-20 and then the Mac. But and so that's interesting. With- where did it start? Like, where did it really sort of jump in was it with the vic 20 or was it with the mac like was the vic 20 just an introduction but it wasn't sort of where things began or like how do you look at that i had to look at the timeline but like was the 2600 before the vic 20 you're asking the wrong guy yeah i was i was really into my friend's 2600 since i wasn't allowed to have one so i was always into video games yeah i was i always wanted that uh and the vic 20 similar type of thing i was very interested in very interested in pushing buttons and making things appear on my television screen because of course like all little kids of that age I was also very into television. So the fact that I could do something that would make pictures appear on the television was really exciting. Uh, but I was a little bit young to be able to do anything useful with the VIC-20 and the Atari I was just super excited A because it was forbidden and I couldn't have it in my house and B I really love video games. Uh, the Mac got me at, at an age when I was finally able to sort of conceptualize the whole thing and say this this is the thing that I like I want I want this and that was, you know, no turning back after that. Do you think that any other computer at this time would have propelled you down the route that you're at? Do you think it was specific to the Macintosh that, like, I would, that, that, that really sort of ignited this love? I would have sought it out. But, like, assuming the Mac still existed, I would have found it. If my parents had bought me an IBM PC, I, I would have, like, gotten some sort of PC magazine to read about it, and then I would have learned that this thing called the Mac exists, and I would have been drawn to it immediately. Because aesthetically and, like, sort of culturally and philosophically, everything about the Mac, all, all of that, I'm, I'm a very aesthetic person, which you may not guess from hearing all my podcasts, but I really care about how things look and how things are arranged, and I have a very specific sense of, things looking appropriate or not and the mac i could tell from a very young age like i could feel the design in the way things were made i could tell that it was different than these other things that if you looked at some other person looked at well that's the same thing the scroll bars it's got windows got icons kind of the same thing i'm like no no not the same thing at all not even close like how can you not see the difference between this screen and that screen it's like night and day to me that was a continual frustration from my whole childhood it's like that that you know, you people who are interested in design and have an artistic bent can look at two things that to a regular person look exactly the same and see one of them as being just radically different and like it's categorically different. Like that is garbage. You don't even show me that. And this is the way it should be. And it's so difficult to explain that to somebody who doesn't see it. Uh, and I definitely couldn't explain it as a kid, but I knew it when I saw it. It's kind of like the first time I saw Japanese animation. It's like that is not Hanna-Barbera. That is very different. Uh, and not to say Hanna-Barbera is bad or anything, but like I said, that is, you know, someone says, oh, there's two cartoons. Like, two cartoons, these are so, these could be not be more different. One, is, one of them might as well be, like, live-action crocodiles and, like, wooden blocks on the other side. They're so different <laughs> from each other, aesthetically speaking. So, uh, that's how I would liken it. The, the difference, you know, the, the way I could tell what Japan, what was Japanese, and even when it was dubbed in English and on American TV, like I say, that was not made in America. That is different. Uh, I can tell that's different. And, the Mac I could tell was different. So if my parents hadn't gotten me a Mac in 1984, I would have found it, sought it out, and still ended up in the same place, I think. This um, eye for aesthetics, where does that end? Like, Does it come down to things like furniture in the home for you? Or is there like a, a point where you're, it, it's not as important to you anymore? If given unlimited money, it would extend to every aspect of my life, and I would be one of those crazy rich people that you see who has like everything just so in their lives. But the fact is, you can't. I can't do that. I don't have. I don't have the means for that. So almost everything in my life is unsatisfactory, <laughs> in in every possible way. And I really have to try it. Like that's one of the appeals of computers is that you can try 
to have a you know a world of the computer that is orderly and pleasing and and in a way that you can't in the physical world. And even on the computer, I'm fighting the battle against the chaos of having to get my work done and not having icons on my desktop and stuff like that. Uh, so it's always there. It's always turned on. I can't switch it off. But uh, so much, so many parts of life, uh, my life and everyone's life, you just like well, you can't. I can't care about that. That just it's gonna. I'll do my best. Try to take, you know, but it just I don't have enough time or energy, and definitely, definitely not enough money to be able to apply this sense to everything in my life. So I pick my battles. I have a few, very few things in my life that I try to keep arranged, just so. Uh, of course, when you have kids, it's like, well, even that goes out the window. Even the things that you have time to maintain. Once you have kids, they don't care about your your realms of uh, trying to keep things orderly. So maybe when I retire. I will have more time to put things in order. Uh, my, my fantasy scenario is kind of like, I remember my grandfather's home uh, after he was retired. Of course, I didn't know him when he was working. And his house was like a museum. Every piece of furniture was in the exact right place. It was very austere and beautifully arranged. And there was it looked spotlessly clean all the time. Nothing was out of place. Everything was interesting and beautiful. And it was just fantastic. And of course, he didn't have a bunch of little kids running around and he was retired. So... My hope is that someday I can live like that, but that day is not today. It's interesting um, that you mentioned your grandfather because it seems like he was instrumental in helping you down this path and you seem to obviously follow these traits of him. Was he very? Was he an important figure in your life when you were growing up? It was actually my father's brother, my uncle, who I think was the instigator of... Uh, you should get a Mac in 1984. And he was able to convince my grandfather. My grandfather uh, was very into sort of gadgets and devices to, you know, to make your life better. Like, you know, little tiny motorized things that would go around your table and sweep up crumbs. He he was also woodworking with his hobby. So he did a lot of woodworking on his own and made furniture and he made his own little gadgets and stuff in his lab, his lab, his workshop, (laughs) which was also spotlessly clean and uh, beautiful to look at. And, he got a computer, and his his enthusiasm for the computer, I guess, was the first example to me that an adult, even like a really old adult like your grandpa, can also be really into computers. And he totally was. He, you know, had his Mac set up with like a big glass countertop thing, and he printed out. He he made little drawings in Mac Paint and, and Mac Write, printed them out, and slid them under the glass to remind him what like the keyboard shortcuts were, instructions on how to do things, and made a set of shelves above it for all of his books about the Mac. And he was kind of my role model of an adult computer geek. Uh, and with a combination of my uncle and him, I think that's what convinced my parents to buy this ungodly expensive computer when they really did not have a lot of money to afford it. And I don't really know how they ended up getting it or how they decided because I wasn't begging them for it. I didn't even know this thing existed. It arrived in my house like it, it came from an asteroid and just landed on a desk. Plop, here's this thing. I, previously, I had never seen it, never heard that it exists. Who had? It was 1984. No one had, I wasn't like reading the computer press. I had just had a rented VIC-20 before that and then nothing for a while. So uh, my grandfather probably was a, a role model going forward and my uncle and my grandfather and my parents were instrumental in getting that first Mac in front of me. When the Mac... 30th stuff was coming out and we were watching some um, videos and stuff and when we were preparing for the prompt our episode of the prompt where we were talking about the Mac it was crazy to me to hear about the price and to compare it now to a Mac Pro and how the price is strangely similar and it just seems like such a crazy thing that this you know that was just the computer that you had in your home and even if you don't think about inflation the prices are very similar it's kind of crazy to look at that, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, computers in general, I guess, were just more accepted that they were super expensive back then. If you were going to get one, it was going to be this great investment. I think, I remember that the, that the turnover was not as great then, or at least wasn't yeah. perceived as great. Because you assume you were going to get this computer and have it for years. And maybe people were foolish and didn't realize that that already was not the case. But it was that was the perception. So maybe that's what convinced my parents they could invest. I mean, they quickly learned this was not the case. Because my 128 was upgraded to a plus, motherboard upgraded to a plus. This used to be a thing that Apple allowed you to do, which sounds crazy from today's perspective, but they would allow you to buy an upgrade, and what they would do is take out the motherboard, take out the back panel, take out the floppy drive, and I think they replaced the analog circuit board as well, but I'm not sure, and replace the components, but leave the CRT, leave the front panel of the computer, 
And what you'd get back was something that looked from the front like a Mac 128, but looked from the back like a Mac Plus and had an 800K floppy drive uh, and all the other Mac Plus things. At least I think the Plus had an 800K. Someone should fact check that for me, but we don't have a chat room. Uh, no. But anyway, like, yeah, that, that Mac, that incredibly expensive Mac, didn't last that long because the mother and the motherboard upgrade to a plus was like a thousand something dollars in in nineteen eighty six dollars. So whether they knew it or not, they were signing up for a long long life of really expensive computer purchases. I'm going to assume that they didn't know it and then maybe wished that it never happened in the first place. <laughs> well, that reminds me of like one of one of my best Christmas presents. Is my my birthday is around Christmas time as well, so I would always do the thing where I would say, if I combine my birthday and Christmas present, yeah. can I get a and insert whatever expensive thing it is that you want? Uh, and the thing I wanted one year, I don't remember what year it was, but it must have been eighty six or eighty seven or something. Is I wanted an external floppy drive because I was sick of switching floppy disks, which you had to do a lot of, and I wanted eight hundred k external floppy drive, and the price of that product was four hundred and fifty dollars, and so. The deal I made with my parents is, if you get me this as my combination Christmas and birthday present, you'll only have to pay half of it, and I'll pay the other half of it out of the money I saved. So I paid my half of the money, they paid their half, and for the sum of $450,1986, I got an 800K floppy drive. That's some Christmas present. <laughs> wasn't my best Christmas present, but it was, it was up there. It was what it enabled, I guess. So I want to take a very quick break to thank our first sponsor for this week's episode, and that is the fine folks over at Squarespace. They are the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own website. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code TALLYHO2. Squarespace are constantly updating their platform with new features, new designs, and more support. They have absolutely fantastic, beautiful templates that you can get started with, and tons of other style options for you to adjust so you can easily create your own space on the internet. Everything is drag and drop with Squarespace, so it's easy to add content straight from your desktop, and you can even rearrange elements of content within a page and see this all updated live within the web browser. Squarespace makes sure that your site looks fantastic on any device because every website that they can give you every one of their beautiful templates has a unique mobile design too. You can easily connect social and web services like Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Instagram, Google and many more so you can have content go in and you can pull content in from them too to display on your site. Squarespace also has their e-commerce platform Squarespace Commerce so if you want to set up a shop and sell things you can do that in just a few minutes. Squarespace is super easy to use, but if you need any help or just anything at all with about the products or the services, they have over 70 dedicated employees in their customer care team based in New York City. They're available for live chat during the week and have super fast email support throughout the day and night. As I said earlier, you can try out Squarespace for free. There's no credit card needed to do this. And if you decide to purchase, it starts at just $8 a month and includes a domain name if you sign up for a year. Make sure that you get 10% off and support this show by using the offer code TALLYHO2. But there's one more thing I want to talk about today. Squarespace are currently looking to expand their team and they're looking to hire 30 engineers and designers by March 15th. This means that they're inviting potential candidates, which could be you if it's something that you're interested in. Why wouldn't you be? Um, They're inviting potential candidates and their spouses to be New Yorkers for a weekend completely on them. So if you want to go and hang out with the guys over at Squarespace and take a a shot at getting a job with their awesome team, go check out beapartofit.squarespace.com. Thank you so much to this, to Squarespace for their support of 5x5 and Command Space. So, John, in your article um, about Geekdom that we've been talking about today, and we've mentioned this a little bit already, that you talk about a love that you had for radio-controlled cars as a kid. When was the last time you raced an RC car? I wanted to get a kit for my son for Christmas this year, Uh but I wasn't sure that he would be into the hobby, so I didn't want to spend a huge amount of money on a kit that he wasn't that into. Like, I didn't want to force the hobby on him. I just thought it would be fun to build one together. But then the only cars that I could find that you would like, that there were kits that were, I guess the curse is that I still know enough about RC cars that I didn't want to get a junky one. They just cost so much money. And I'm like, I'm not spending that much money for something that he might not even like. So I got him a pre-assembled one because it was so much cheaper, which skipped the step of assembling uh, which he may or may not have enjoyed and went right to the step of driving around. And 
you know, of course it's winter time, so we didn't get much of a chance to use it because there's snow on the ground. I don't want to use it out in the snow, but we did drive it around a little bit. And that was the last time I used one was, I think, you know, Christmas, day after Christmas or not the day after, actually like a week after. Whenever it was, we were back, we were away on Christmas. Whenever we were back here and the weather was okay, we took the car outside and drove it around a bit. Did it take you back to your youth at all when you were playing, when you were racing with it? Yeah, a little bit. I, I remembered, uh, it reminded me basically of crashing my car and breaking it and knowing how much money it would cost to fix it and doing that over and over and over again until I learned how to drive the thing. Uh, <laughs> Is that part of the fun? No, it was not when I was a kid, let me tell you. It was not like the the car and making the car go really fast was fun, but the physics of a, a fast-moving object hitting something, that was not fun, especially when I would look at it and I was old enough not to immediately break into tears, but I felt like crying because you're like, you know how many weeks of allowance that's going to be? Like this was before I had a job or anything. You know? And you can't have fun with the car until you fix like the front A arm. It's not, you know, you can't even use it. So you just, you broke your own toy. Your early loves of, um, uh, you know, your, your early geek passion, so RC cars and computers, they both have, and especially then, because um, you look at computers in the same way, as you mentioned, like upgrading your motherboard and stuff, there's a sort of a level of getting involved and tinkering and making and, and, and tweaking the, like the the items which are part of the hobby. Do you think that this kind of interaction is inherent for you to be geeky about something? Like, Do you have to be involved in it at a base level like so you can fully understand and appreciate it? I think so, because if, I mean, I guess there are limits, but if I think about, obviously hobbies that, the whole hobby is that you're tweaking stuff, like computers, I think, would fall into that category. Like, you know, I go all the way down to like, I want to know everything about this computer, I want to know how it works, I want to know how to build my own computer, you know, all the way up and program it and do all that stuff. That's what I went to school for, that's what I learned about. Uh, you could be a computer, you can just, you know, your, your knowledge would be like, I know exactly how to use the user interface very well. I know all the options, I know all the preferences, I know all the tricks of networking and stuff like that, uh, but I go even deeper than that. But even in the realm of other things like, I guess, TV shows and movies, uh, that that I start to draw the line. Like, do I know so much about filmmaking? I know a little bit of, about filmmaking, but I don't know like as much as someone who's like a real film there. But video games is an example, I guess because it crosses over the computers, is that I want to know everything about video games. I want to know how they're made. I want to know like, Everything about the engines, about the asset workflows, about the technologies of the chips, about how they influence the game design, the whole nine yards. And I'm not necessarily doing that stuff myself uh, because sometimes you just can't or it's out of your reach or you don't have the expertise or the time to go deep into it. But I would definitely want to know how all that stuff works. It's not enough for me to be a video game geek just say, oh, I've played a lot of games and I've enjoyed them. I, I want to go deeper than that. But like I said, there's a limit because television and movies starts to reach my limit and that's like... I guess there's only so many hours in a day. Like, you know, do I know? I, I don't have time to learn everything about film. Although I often think, boy, it would be fun to go to film school. Like, because I know there's things I don't know that I would enjoy knowing. So, it, mostly just limited, uh, especially when you're an adult with kids, to how much time you have to get into these things. Mentioning your kids again, and we spoke about it a moment ago, you saying about racing RC cars with your kids, with your son. Um, how important is it for you, for your children to be geeky with something not particularly important uh like and i don't i don't think i ever thought it like i i didn't think uh, when i was a kid thinking boy when i had kids i hope they're into the same things i am i enjoy it when they are but as a as a parent even if you even if you feel enough you don't have kids now and you're thinking i'll really i really hope my kid is into whatever i'm into i really hope he's a baseball fan and i'm into baseball i really hope he likes you know chess because i'm really into chess I think everyone will be surprised at how quickly they stop caring about once they have kids. And it's like the stupid cliche, like you just want your kids to be happy. Like you just want them to be successful and happy. Whatever they are into is perfectly fine. Even if they're not into anything, like just want them to be happy and that's it. And like well-adjusted, healthy and happy. And that just overwhelms everything. Uh, that said, I get, you know, I do enjoy it when my son is into things that I like and I do offer up all the things that I liked as a kid to both of my children to see if they'll like them. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But it's not like, I, I don't feel bad if they don't like it. And I don't feel bad if they're not super into anything. If, if I happen to have like a laid back kid who was not super into anything, as long as they were happy, healthy and well adjusted, I would be perfectly fine. But, you know, genetics is what it is. And I don't think I ended up with any of those kids. <laughs> Hey, everybody's built differently, right? They'll find their own things to be geeky about. 
So for me personally, I think that my um, the things that I the reason that I become geeky about certain things is because I have quite a obsessive like you know like personality. Like I, if I become interested in something, I kind of become consumed by it, and I want to learn more about it and experience more. So this is even with like a TV show. When I find a TV show that I love, I will like many geeks will binge on it and want to find out more about it and then what other shows span off from it or you know that sort of stuff and I want to consume more and more do you find that you are this sort of you, you inclined this sort of way as well that's that's part of why I put the RC car story in the, the geekdom article because I had a lot of friends who had remote control cars and had built them and used them and I was kind of an outsider looking in on that, saying like, boy, all these guys are into remote control cars and they've had them for years and they know all this stuff about them that I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm never going to be like them. I'm never going to be uh, a remote control car geek because they've just been doing it for years and I'm just looking it on it all as they race their things around. And like you, when I decided to get into RC cars, the only way I knew how to get into anything was, all right, well, I'll get a car and like subscribe to the magazine that they all read and the magazines would come to my house, and I would read them. And I would read them from cover to cover. And I guess I just thought everybody who subscribed to this magazine, every time one came to the house, they read it from cover to cover and absorbed every single thing in it. Uh, they didn't. They don't. A lot of people don't do that. That is that is a unique trait of, as you said, someone who has a sort of a, a obsessive leanings. Where, uh, And I was young enough that I didn't even realize that this was unique. And In the article, I was saying like when I realized that after about a year of that, after a year of reading every single thing I could get my hands on about cars and building my own cars and breaking them and building them again and breaking them and reading, like just just doing what I normally do, I had this vast trove of knowledge about remote control cars. That, and still, I didn't consider myself like to be a real remote control car geek because, you know, my friends had done it earlier. But by that point, I knew more than most of them about these things. Like either they had gone out of the hobby or they were never all that into it. And that's just that was just my default mode of like, okay, well, I'm going to learn about this thing now. And of course, I'm going to learn every single possible thing I can about it. Just like just soaking in it, right? Uh, so I definitely have that personality. But you mentioned television shows and movies. And that is an area where I've sort of changed my thinking on this a little bit through experience. Because I used to be definitely... If I'm into, like, a great example is, like, the Star Wars. This is, maybe this was a, a traumatic experience. Like, the Star Wars prequels, right? When the, a new Star Wars movie was coming out, I was on the internet, and I read every scrap of information about the new Star Wars movies you could possibly find. I was all over that. I was, you know, on, reading all the movie websites, reading all the Usenet groups, reading all the fake and real leaked scripts and everything, because this is before The Phantom Menace, right? I was 100% into that, and then Phantom Mass, which was a, such a crushing experience. And I'm not going to say from that point on, but that, I think, marked the turning point where I decided that my enjoyment of television and, and movies and stuff like that is enhanced by knowing less about it ahead of time. So I'm less likely to, for example, like when Battlestar Galactic was coming on, I considered, like, and I kind of wanted to listen to the podcast that they did about the Battlestar episodes, but I didn't want I didn't want that view of the series until maybe after it was all done. And of course, I know I was never going to go back and listen to them all after that. And when new movies are coming out that I'm interested in, I try to avoid like you know tamp down my instincts to make me want to read stories about that movie. I just want to go into it and see the movie and experience, it, and then maybe then go backwards uh, and and uh, read about it afterwards. So that's an area where I've changed my thinking on what I want to do. But in general, my default mode is the same as yours, which is sort of, you know, find out as much as you can about it, soak in it, uh, take it all in. Are you staying away um, from news about the next set of Star Wars movies then? For the most part. I mean, I know the things that it's impossible not to know, right? Directors, you know, <laughs> schedule, casting, things like that, but I'm not seeking it out. It's going to come to me. I'm going to do what I can to avoid spoilers about the plot and everything like that, but yeah, I'm not. I'm not crazy about it, but uh, I'm definitely trying not to seek out that information like I was, like like I have in the past. One of the, kind of the way that you finish off the article um, is talking about helping people who are interested in something along the path to to being a geek. You know, not to alienate people or to try and say you know you you aren't at the right level you know this door is closed to you how important is this like what does this mean to you and why did you want to put that 
sort of message in the piece? I think I should have been clearer on the point of this. Because a lot of people read it and didn't come away with the point that I thought they were getting. And I, I, what, what my unique angle on this was is that I saw a lot of, uh, you still see a lot of like exclusion of people because they don't meet some bar, some arbitrary bar, uh, and they're not. Therefore, they're not allowed to be in the group that is enthusiastic about whatever this thing is. And the, like the remote control car thing, what I'm trying to express in this road to geekdom thing is the the only like the only thing preventing you from being a geek like you is just you learning about the thing. If you're enthusiastic about it and you want to learn a lot about it and you do learn about it, then you've done it. Like that's the only criteria, the only real criteria for membership in, in this, you know, sort of in this group of people. Like, it's not like an exclusive club where you have to be a certain type of person or whatever. You don't have to have been there from the beginning. Like, I wasn't there from the beginning or with the road control cars or you too, although I was with, with the Mac, and you'll hear a lot of people saying, well, I've been a Mac user since the beginning, so I'm a real Mac geek and you aren't. That's not what defined geekdom. It is, like, it's simply just, you know, enthusiasm and knowledge, and you can gain enthusiasm and knowledge. And the, the the reason I put in that last part in particular because I thought there would be a very big backlash about this because it's like well you know oh it's all you need is, is enthusiasm and knowledge well it's easy for you to say but what if you don't have access to the knowledge what if you don't have access to a computer what if you what if you live in a place without running water how are you ever going to be a computer geek right uh, and that is a very real thing and I wanted to definitely acknowledge that and say that there are people who have enthusiasm for something but don't have the ability to gain the knowledge because of their life circumstances. Like they, they don't, they can't afford to have a computer. They don't know anything about, you know, repairing a car because they have never had a car, but they're really into cars, you know? And what I'm trying to say is that geekdom should be inclusive is that when there is, when there, well, the first part is don't try to exclude people based on bogus criteria. Like, Oh, you weren't there in the beginning or I was into it before you were therefore you're not a real geek or whatever, or, you know, you're a female, therefore you can't like Superman or some crazy crap like that. Like I did the whole geek girl episode in hypercritical. Uh, and the second one is if you see somebody who appears to have enthusiasm for something, but is prevented from acquiring the knowledge due to some circumstance beyond their control, it's your duty as a fellow geek to help them overcome whatever those obstacles are to, you know, to attain geekdom in this area they're interested in. It's just, I mean, it's it's not specific to geekdom. It's like being a nice person or whatever. But it's like what I was trying to do is acknowledge that my simple system, oh, it's all you need is knowledge and enthusiasm, is, is kind of like a pat answer. You're just assuming that people have access to these things. And I think it's a shame when someone is really enthusiastic about something, but is prevented from uh, sort of engaging with that enthusiasm by by other circumstances. So if you can help in any way by inviting someone along to some group meetup, by letting them play with your expensive toy, to, you know, to teaching them about it, you know, from your perspective, and maybe, you know, like giving them access to your, helping repair your car if they're into car repair, if they don't have their own car. Like, that's just a nice thing to do. And I think that's an important part of Geekdom because like I said in the beginning, geeks want to be with other people who ha share the same enthusiasm. And if you see someone who looks like they have that enthusiasm but doesn't quite have the knowledge yet, that's a potential new friend, and you should bring them into the group instead of telling them, oh, well, you're never going to be a whatever geek because of, you know, insert some arbitrary reason. I think it's a positive message. I think it's good. Now I want to take a break for our second sponsor. And then, John, I want to talk to you about ATP a little before I let you go today. So I want to take a moment to thank um, the five folks over at FreshBooks for helping support this week's episode. Um, of command space it's tax time and if you're not using fresh books your life is probably a mess right now tell me if this sounds right for you you're hunting for receipts digging through invoices going through every record one by one well that's the worst FreshBooks is the simple cloud accounting solution that makes tax time a breeze with FreshBooks, you can create professional looking invoices capture and track expenses and get real-time business reports with just a couple of clicks Plus, you can work from anywhere with FreshBooks mobile with FreshBooks mobile apps for your phone or tablet. The sooner you start using FreshBooks, the sooner you can start focusing on the work you love. Focus on your work, not your paperwork. This is what's so awesome about FreshBooks. They're just great. This is, you know, you, they take care of all this stuff for you. It's like the worst time in the year if you're a small business owner to make sure you get all this stuff together. Well, don't continue to have shoeboxes of receipts stored under a bed somewhere that you're digging through when it comes to February time. 
You want to make sure that you're using FreshBooks, getting it all in there, using all of the great features and stuff they have, all of the, the good, just the good stuff when it comes to managing finances, because that's what they can give you. Now, I want you to go and try all this out for yourself. Have a play around, because I know it's going to be the right thing for you. But the best way to try this out is with a free trial. So for a limited time, you can try out FreshBooks for free for 60 days. To get started, visit getfreshbooks.com and enter the... You want to enter command space in the How Did You Hear About Us section because then they're going to know that you found out about FreshBooks from this show. So right now, FreshBooks is giving all of the listeners to command space this extended 60-day free trial to make tax time a breeze. So go to getfreshbooks.com and as I said, enter command space in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Thank you so much to FreshBooks for supporting 5x5 and command space. So they're great guys. Thank you to them. So, John, the last time that we spoke, ATP had pretty much just started and Neutral was still going. So you've been recording ATP for over a year now, or coming up to a year, I think. Over that time, how has the show changed? I don't know if it's changed that much. I think... as with any kind of show, <laughs> accidental show that really didn't have any planning or forethought, if you ask me, like, what is the format of ATP, I don't even know. I think we're still still figuring it out. I think it varies from show to show. Even, like, the topic, if you were to say, what do you talk about at ATP, I guess we talk about tech stuff, but it's all over the place, and there's car stuff that leaks in, and we talk about, nowadays, we talk about so much stuff that just gets cut out that only the live audience hears, because it's basically just the three of us talking about the things that we would normally talk about, and then we winnow it down to what would be appropriate for a podcast with tech in the title. Uh, so I think it's kind of evolved and we've gotten more comfortable and kind of gotten into a little bit of a groove, but it's nothing compared to like the sort of, there's no there's no sane capsule description or format like there would be for like for this show where you ask people questions and they give you answers. So for Hypercritical where it was like I did the follow-up and then we had a main topic and then, you know, like I felt like on a lot of other podcasts I have a much better idea what's going on. ATP format-wise reminds me a lot more of something like Roderick on the Line, where the format is the people who to participate, and what the hell is going to happen from week to week, you have no idea, and that's part of the fun of the show. Embedded in the premise of ATP is the idea that you do not prepare, right? It's in the song, and it was part of the whole idea of the show existing, was that you wouldn't prepare anymore, so you wouldn't have to do hypercritical levels of work which I'm sure took hours and hours every week to prepare for how true is this now after doing it for this amount of time do you still continue to mainly go into the show without doing mountains of preparation beforehand yes yeah, so my, my instincts are to prepare but I don't mostly because I don't have time and a lot of the time in the show I regret it I say I wish I knew more about this thing I'm about to talk about but I don't even know the basic facts because I did no research and the song is pretty much true i go into those things not only not having done any research but not always even knowing what the heck we're going to talk about like i try to put things in the show notes to remind myself but they're like one line items like you know (laughs) i should look at the notes and see them but someone probably had a line item for uh facebook buys whatsapp but i hadn't at that point even read any of the articles about facebook buying it i I knew how much they bought it for because i saw the number on twitter but i didn't know anything about it i had done like zero research and I, I go in basically just with the knowledge that I was sort of ambi- ambiently acquired during the week by reading Twitter. And I do read the links that people send and, and you know, listen to their feedback where they'll say, hey, you might be interested in this article. Although a lot of the times I just instapaper those and I don't even have a chance to read them. So I probably do more prep than, than the other two guys in terms of topics I'm going to talk about. But it's all just sort of one or two lines in a thing and a bunch of links that I throw in there during the week. It is nothing compared to the hours and hours and hours I would spend preparing for hypercritical. And and it makes me uncomfortable during the show because I don't know what the heck I'm going to say and I don't haven't done the research that I wish I had done. And so it's like, boy, if I had if I'd only researched this a little bit, I would have more interesting things to say than just say, you know, the three of us is the same. We're like, well, do you know anything about this? I don't know, whatever. But that that two two parts of that. One is I wouldn't be able to keep doing the show if I had to put in that amount of work because I just don't have the time and I, was, I would just burn out. And that's why, you know, the two of them are trying to stop me from doing what I'm inclined to do, which is put in more time to do research. Uh, and the second one is it's a little bit exhilarating to go in not knowing what the hell you're going to say and not have any research. I don't know if it makes for a better show. A lot of people say they like hypercritical better because I did all the preparation. 
but it's definitely very different. Uh, but the bottom line is ATP, I think, is more sustainable. I mean, I think I've already done it longer. No, I guess I haven't done it longer than hypercritical yet. But we'll see. We'll see if we end up uh, going ATP longer than hypercritical. But after the first year of it, I can tell you that it is taking a lot less out of me to do ATP. And I think it's a perfectly valid format for a show to not have to do hours and hours of research beforehand. I certainly didn't for this podcast, and I'm assuming you didn't either. Oh, I, 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 yeah, I do hours. And I'm, that's not a, a joke. This, this is easily the most preparation I do for any show is Command Space. For, even for when you have me on? Yeah, every, every practically about 75% of the questions I've asked you were pre-written. Yeah, well, I assume you pre-write the questions, but it's not like you have to research who is this John Syracuse. What do I know well, about him? Like, you I know mean, what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess I guess I've been. Uh, well, you could say I've been researching for this ep- for this episode for a year, but um, I, I I will for for Command Space is the show that I do the most prep for because I will read through things, read through articles, and start writing out questions, and I have an outline and stuff like that. So each episode probably takes I don't know maybe an hour or two to prepare for. In that regard, um, when that's what that's what I would consider no preparation, though. <laughs> if, yeah, if, mean, we're gonna, if we're going to consider an hour or two cumulatively during the week, I think I'm probably over an hour or two on ATP. If you just count like the amount of time I spend editing that no document, but but that's that's what I like say going in with no prep. It's not fair to judge others' preparation by your preparation standards. I, I feel. But I didn't want to do like in hypercritical. I didn't want to do that much preparation. Like especially in the <laughs> beginning, I'm like, okay, I just need to write up my notes. For the for the show, so I know what I'm going to talk about next week, and and I would do it like the day before we recorded, right? And I would start like at you know eight o'clock after eight thirty after the kids are in bed, uh, and I would say, okay, I'm just going to write this outline in this text edit document because I had like basically one text edit document per show, it was just like a little indented outline, uh, and then I would do that, and then I would look up, and it's like two a.m., and I feel like I have I've got about half done. And the show is the next day. So then I started moving it back. Okay, can't do it the night before. I got to go to two days before, three days before, four days before. And then it just became this constant thing. And the accumulated number of hours, it was just like every free second I had, I had to be working on that file and, and building it up. And even when the show was about to come, I would have this gigantic document with a bazillion links in it and, you know, be editing it and rearranging things and putting things in bold. And I would still feel like I'm not prepared. And then we would just record it. And then that would be done. And then we have to do next week's show. So that was, that was a lot of work. Was doing that amount, looking at it in hindsight, was was that amount of preparation, that amount of time, was it a bad thing or a good thing? I think it was a good thing, and I wish I had had more time. If I had more time, they would be even better. Maybe the shows would have been shorter if I had more time, because I could get my stuff together. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a lot, Going into a lot of these shows, like even this thing here where we're talking about, I didn't know what we were going to talk about until you told me. But, you know, we're talking about this Geekdom article. It's so clear in my head what this article is about. And then when I try to express it on a podcast, I realize that I don't know the right way to say what I want to say. Like the exercise of writing is, oh, you got all the time in the world. Sit there until you get the words right. And when I write something, I feel like I get it down on the page. Uh, the unfortunate thing about my writing I spend all this time for is I feel like I spent such a long time writing this. And I rearranged it and cut it and edited it and changed and revised. And I think I've got it. It's down there. But it's like, there's so much meaning and import in particular sentences that I put in, and that's not always clear to the reader. Like, I feel like if I get one precise sentence, one or two precise sentences that say what I mean, that should be sufficient. But it's not because the reader isn't inside my head, and they just sort of skim over that sentence. It's like, oh, you missed, you missed the point of the whole thing. Like, I try not to do that thing where I repeat myself hundreds of times over and over again and put things in bold and be emphatic about them in my writing because I feel like when I mean, you do your writing – you have the time to refine and get it right. And just like there, those, these are the exact seven words I want to say. And he's exactly expressed what I mean. And people just skim right over them just like there were any other words and don't realize like the entire meaning was in that sentence. And like, I actually picked those words specifically. They're not just there randomly. They don't kind of mean the vague, you know, you read that word and you're like, Oh, that's like a synonym for this other word. And I kind of get what he means. Like, no, I picked that specific word and the specific arrangement of sentence and this particular meaning there. And, that I sometimes regret. It's a weakness of my writing that I'm not adequately conveying which parts are the important parts that people should follow. Uh, when I do a podcast, I have that idea in my head, 
and it just doesn't come out of my mouth. And the more preparation I can do, the better I can get like sort of the podcast equivalent of that writing where I can have the exact words and then I can use inflection or tone or whatever to emphasize them to show that this is really what I mean. This is the important point. You should pay attention right here. Uh, so I think hypercritical benefited from that preparation. I think it would have benefited even more from more preparation. But, you know, that wasn't that wasn't my real job. It was just a thing I did after work. Do you find um, or do you feel that each host of ATP has their own roles that they fulfill in the show? I think it varies by topic. People always like if they write reviews, if they try to pin us down into roles or whatever, uh, you know, whatever they decide that our roles are. But it really depends on who's bringing the topic to the table and who is the most enthusiastic or knowledgeable about the topic. There are some topics that I have very little to say about that you know you could say the other people fill the John role on that topic and and vice versa. So I really do, do think it varies, especially on you know sometimes for the topics that aren't necessarily tech related, where one of the other hosts will be more knowledgeable or enthusiastic about it than I am, but that doesn't make it into the show. Then it, I, I don't think it's worth pigeonholing us into any particular role. I mean our personalities pigeonhole us to some degree, but uh, and the fact that Marco and I can't shut up. But but other than that, I think it varies, and I think I think we're all open with that format. Like whoever wants to bring whatever to the table and fulfill whatever role during that conversation, that's fine. So my last question for you today: Are we going to see an OS ten review this year? Do you think from you? I get tired just thinking about it. I mean, I, the thing in favor of it, the thing that will almost certainly make it happen, is if they call it ten dot ten. How how could I not? <laughs> Right, the ten. You can't let that go away, can you? You can't yeah. just let that go. <laughs> yeah, even though it will be the eleventh, because we, we started from zero, and it's not even the eleventh review because I started from developer preview two and had a bunch of crap before that and public beta. Like, but just the law of round numbers thing. What people should really be worried about is if they call this ten ten, start to worry seriously whether I'm going to write the next review because then I have like the whole thing. Like, boy, it'd be really great to stop after ten ten. Say, I did all the reviews. I did. I, I did up to ten ten, even though again that's eleven reviews. It's like it's it's like a hundred episodes of hypercritical, even though I wasn't there for two of them. So technically it was only ninety eight, but the show was called a hundred. You know, episode a hundred was the last one. So I will almost certainly do ten ten. I'm worried if I'm gonna get a ticket to WWDC this year because of, you know, the usual yep. ticket lottery type stuff. I'm as always I'm worried about scheduling. The scheduling doesn't work out. Who knows what's gonna happen? It could be a, an epic disaster and I could have a crappy review or review that's too short or a review that's late. I could go out on a sour note, or I could just continue doing this until I die. But that review, boy, it is a lot of work. Not because it's inherently a lot of work, but because I make it a lot of work for myself and because I'm lousy at it. Because it's like it depresses me when I see that I spend so many months of my life obsessing over this thing, and someone puts out an article that is equally well-informed, well-researched, and well-written, and they do it in like three days. And that depresses me. And that shows, that, that shows why I'm not a professional writer by trade. Uh, so that continues to be depressing and may prevent me from doing future reviews as, you know, but I really like having done them, despite the fact that during, while I'm making them, sometimes it feels like torture. So we'll Well, see. You know, I can guarantee that everybody else has less Simpsons references though. You know, you've got that bit cornered. Well, you just get the Simpsons references. There are references oh, yeah. in there that that other people are getting that you're not getting. There's there's something for everybody in there, and then there's a whole bunch that are just for me. I mean, you know, one thing we can learn from ATP is that that not everybody gets your references. Those two are are just pathetic. But uh, yeah, Simpsons I feel like has pretty broad appeal, but there are very specific things. The references are something that I put in there, in all seriousness, to to make me continue to move forward at working on the review because they are entertaining to me during the act of writing. Whether they're entertaining to people during the act of reading is almost besides the point. Although I, I suppose I'm kind of gleefully thinking about the one person who will get this reference, but I'm trying very hard not to make the references distracting from the content. In fact, I, if, if someone doesn't get it, it should be just fine. It shouldn't, it shouldn't take away from the review at all. It should only be icing for the three or four people who understand what I was getting at and, I, I I have occasionally I have fantasies of going back to all my old reviews and making an annotated version and just going through and highlighting everything that's a reference and you would be shocked how much crap in there. Not they're not even entertaining or interesting or good references. Sometimes they add some insight to the theme, sometimes they don't. Uh, but God, there are a ton of them. And that's me sort of 
keeping myself going, keeping, you know, trying to say, keep going, you can do it. There's, there's another little reward for you down here because I know you thought of some interesting reference you can put it over there. Uh, yeah, I, I do enjoy that. So, John, where can people keep in touch with what you're up to? Where can they go to find out everything that you're doing? Well, you can follow me on Twitter. It's just my last name, which you can hear in the theme song of the podcast I'm on every week, atp.fm, the Accidental Tech Podcast. You can go to my website. You can call it a blog if you want at hypercritical.co. And uh, every year or so, you can read a big review of OS X from me at Ars Technica until I decide to stop doing that. And, of course, you can find links to all of that stuff in the show notes for this week's episode, which you'll find at 5x5.tv slash cmdspace slash 86. Um, John, thank you so much for being here today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you again. Thanks, Mike. Love doing it. See you next year. Yeah, <laughs> we'll do that. We'll just make it the annual thing now. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do. I am imike, I-M-Y-K-E. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Command Space, and I'll be back next time. Until then, bye-bye.